So we just finished our series, Life Together, a couple of weeks ago, and um, been praying about what, what book to start, and, and the Lord just impressed upon me First Samuel. So that's, that's what we'll be studying for a while, First and Second Samuel. Um, and just a little bit of background before we start on this new study. The books that we call First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are actually First, Second, Third, Fourth Kings in the Hebrew Bible. They don't separate the first, second Samuel, first, second Kings. It's kind of all together there. And we don't know who wrote these books, but we do know that these books cover a period of history of 400 years, uh, 1050 BC to 586 BC, or the period of Israel's monarchy. And we still, uh, and we'll be covering the first two books, and then we'll cover the beginning of the kingship of Israel, and then we'll probably take a break. Before we go on to First and Second Kings, just for a breather there. Now, First Samuel has an unusual beginning, and this history of kings. Now, think about how you would record history yourself. If you were planning to write a history of the U.S. presidency, how would you start that history? And as you start to pen your opening chapter, what would you write about George Washington? And how, how would anyone begin the history of a long-lived institution such as the U.S. presidency or any other institution? And this is important, important to consider because how one begins would indicate a lot about the values of that institution. So let's start by reading the first two verses in 1 Samuel. Now there was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. The author starts by giving us some background on Elkanah, such as where he's from and, and his pedigree for several generations. Then the author goes into how many wives Elkanah has two, which tells us he had enough money to provide for them and children. And here's when some people like myself talk about polygamy, which the Old Testament actually never straight out condemns. However, 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 whoever said that must be single. So, when we look at incidents that go contrary to what's found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, when polygamy is practiced as it is here, you'll always notice that it's really messy. And what does Genesis 2 tell us? Let's go there, verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, comparable to him. One of, the, one of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he could, would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And it seems like the Old Testament is telling us something regarding monogamy and polygamy. Then we're told one has no children. Now why is that detail in here? Who cares about this petty detail of the domestic circumstances of two people? But this is the very circumstance that will dominate the rest of the first chapter of the history of Israel's kings. And to help set the scene before we go further into this story, things were pretty bad during this period of time. This is, this is the judges period before the time of the king. So if you look back at the last five chapters in the book of Judges, you'll find that it was a time that was really chaotic. When people did whatever they wanted to do, whenever they wanted to do, however they wanted to do it, wherever they wanted to do it, just utter chaos in this period of Israel. So nationally, this period of history seems really dark, really hopeless. And now you look at verse 3. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And religiously, things were really bad. You notice the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who are priests, but they're very, very corrupt priests. And why does the author mention the two sons of Eli here? Well, this is a deliberate way to bring up the issue of leadership right at the beginning, because this whole book is on kings, which is perhaps the key issue that dominates the entire four books of kings, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. So things were bad nationally, things were bad religiously, and now we have things that aren't so good at home, domestically. Now back to Hannah and Peninnah, where we have Elkanah's wives who are in conflict And no doubt making things at home really difficult. So we have two wives, two priests, two problems. But we have a God of amazing grace. Verse 4, And whenever the time for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. Now go back to verse 5. Who closed Hannah's womb? God. Is God responsible for our handicaps or lacks in life? Like Hannah not being able to have children? Is God responsible for us not having the things we really want to have that are just normal to have? Such as children, marriage, a good job, a good reputation. And this may make some people feel uncomfortable, but yes. He is. So what does this say about God? Whom we know is gracious. Whom we know is loving. Let's go to verse 6, where we will see grace in God's providence. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 7, So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept. And did not eat. You see what happened at Shiloh when they went to worship there? Peninnah, her adversary, viciously irritated her to purposely upset her because God closed her womb. We see that this misfortune had reduced Hannah's life to misery. She's miserable because of this continuous taunting she received that made it really tough just to live life. Has anyone ever taunted you because of lack? How did that make you feel? 
And this was year after year, and Peninnah looked to purposely irritate Hannah, so she wept, she didn't eat. And it was a recurring scene, year after year, where Hannah knew what was coming. She's like, ah, not that again. So what's the providence here? What's the provision of God in this? The providence is that there are these nasty people who unknowingly become servants of the Lord, like Peninnah. Isn't that a strange provision? Nasty people becoming servants of the Lord. Peninnah irritated, angered, stressed, humiliated, insulted, offended Hannah, and it drove her to prayer. And because it drove her to prayer, we'll see in the coming verse that God answered her prayer and gave her a son. Not just any son, but a son who would become the glue to hold Israel together in a very difficult period in their history. So looking back, because of God's crafty providence, His seemingly strange ways of working, Peninnah served the purposes of the Lord. Now think about this. What if Peninnah was kind to Hannah? Samuel might not ever be born. That glue might never exist. It was the intolerable harshness of Peninnah that drove Hannah to God's throne of grace. And this wasn't Peninnah's intent, right? She wasn't thinking, I wonder how I can remain my nasty self and serve the Lord. I I bet if I irritate Hannah every year about not having children, God is going to use me. I bet that's it. No, right? It's through the Lord's craftiness that He uses her nastiness to serve His purposes. And Peninnah was used to drive Hannah to God's throne of grace. She was used so that Israel had Samuel to help them through a disastrous period in their history. It's God's grace. It's God's providence. A few months ago, I traveled to Switzerland with my family, and we stopped by Geneva. And there's a really interesting story that took place there. For those of you interested in church history, uh, Brian Handy is going to be doing church history from Reformation to this period. And this is a Reformation story. So it's cool. It's cool. So a young John Calvin, right? He's in his home country of France, and he's looking to flee east. So he's traveling east, hoping to find a place of refuge uh, to write, to help the causes of the Protestant Reformation. So he wanted to get to Strasbourg or to Basel, but there was a problem because in 1536, Francis I of France and Charles V of Rome that were having their third war. So all the roads were not fit for travel because there was a war. So he had to take a detour. He had to first go south to Lyon, and then he'd go to Lausanne, but he didn't get that far. He made a stopover in Geneva. And it was... When Calvin spent the night in Geneva that this burly, abrasive, this pompous guy named William Farrell, just dressed in an elf suit, hundreds of years old now, heard that the young scholar Calvin was there. And this burly man beginning, began threatening Calvin with the judgment of God. If, if you don't stay here, You will be judged by God. And he was saying, you need to move the Reformation forward from this city, from Geneva. So Calvin did, even though those weren't his plans, and it was pretty much against his will. He had no interest in staying there. This was just a stopover. 
He had to make a big loop. He had no intention of going to Geneva at all. Why did this take place? Because Charles and Francis were at war. So do we owe Calvin's support and his contribution to the Protestant Reformation to Charles V and Francis I? And in a way, yes. I mean, he kind of had to take the detour to end up in Geneva, but they were servants of the Lord's providence. And that's what we see with Hannah and Peninnah. What does nasty Peninnah teach us? That difficulties are often the wrapping in which the gift of grace is delivered. And within that wrapping of difficulty, God's providence has a way of taking our messes and making them opportunities for His divine mercies. Verse 8, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Elkanah offers a really nice gesture in giving Hannah a double portion. But the taunting made that gift empty. Made that offer empty. Hannah was so upset she couldn't eat. And so we get this sense here that perhaps Peninnah has gotten the best of Hannah. What do you think of Elkanah's speech here? You know, this is a caring husband. And maybe he lacks full understanding of what Hannah is going through. But sometimes our relationship with people and with our circumstances, they just don't ever improve until we try to accept the good that we do have. And we can end up hurting those that we love and those who love us when we are not accepting of the love that they're trying to offer us in our pain. Now verses 19 or 9 through 18 is Hannah's prayer, and we can see grace in this prayer, starting in verse 9. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Hannah goes to God in distress after trying to eat, after trying to accept her husband's token of love and, and the good she does have, but she's still disheartened. So she ends up going to the outer court of the tabernacle to cry out to God. Crying out to the Lord is the best thing to do. And we find that it was done in other examples in the Old Testament. We'll just look at two of them. The first one in the book of Ezra and the second one will book be in the book of Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. With respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, and I plucked out some of my hair of my head and beard, and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice." At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. 
Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty, and for our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And we see how Ezra is faced with the tragedy in the spiritual lives of those that he loves and is responsible for. And he falls on his knees with his hands spread out to the Lord, to his God. He's grieved. He's pulled his hair out from his hair, from his head and his beard. He tore his clothes off. And then he finally prayed. Now turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. Nehemiah is faced with a crisis in his nation. And we see how he first sits down, he grieves, he weeps, and then he finally prays. Why do we always resort to prayer last? Let's go back to 1 Samuel to point out some things about Hannah's prayer. You look at verse 8 where Elkanah asks Hannah, why is your heart grieved? Now, the word grieved here isn't entirely accurate because when when we, we read this, we get a sense of sadness, right? Grief. But a more accurate definition would be uh, more of anger or resentment. It's more of, why is your heart resentful? She's more resentful at this point than she is sad. And this is understandably so if you put yourself in her shoes after dealing with nasty panina year after year. And so she's resentful. Now go to verse 10. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. So, a heart of resentment, verse 8. A bitterness of soul, verse 10. And this is how her prayer begins. And forgive me for jumping around here, but I wanted to jump to a a different verse here in, in the chapter to point out the description as she prayed in verse 15. Hannah says, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. Now, sorrowful gives us this impression of sadness as well, or an oppression, which may very well be the case. But the word here is more descriptive of being hardened, fierce, harsh. So it's not so much the effect this is having on her spirit, as much as it is the the description of the state of her spirit. So she has this fierce spirit, she has a resentful heart, she has a bitter soul. And this is how she's speaking to Almighty God. But it's where she's at. And God listens to us where we're at. In verse 16, Hannah says, For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, this is a very upset, angry, bitter, resentful, distressed woman. And all of these things that we would deem negative drive her to prayer. And she prayed to God, weeping. And sometimes that's how prayer begins. Let's go back to verse 11 where we see what her prayer asked and what it promised. 
verse 11. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and no razor shall come upon his head. She asked for a son. And she made a vow to give up her son to the Lord all the days of his life. So her request is very specific, and she makes a vow. And also notice how she addressed God. What did Hannah assume in her prayer by addressing God as Lord of hosts? What does her prayer assume? She addressed Yahweh as the Lord of hosts. Yahweh has all the hosts of heaven. Yahweh has all the powers of the universe under His control. And she is asking our all-powerful God to look on the affliction of His maidservant and to remember her. Now listen to that request. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant. Now that term, look on the affliction, it's only found in one other place in the Bible, and it's found in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, where it reads, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. In the New King James Bible, it's the word oppression. But if we look at the Hebrew word, it's the same one that we find in Samuel, that we find in Exodus, that's affliction. Same Hebrew word. So we see the compassion of God in Exodus as He delivers the Israelites from Egypt. So it makes me wonder if Hannah is identifying with our compassionate God and using the same word affliction to ask for redemption, deliverance for herself. And she seems to be assuming something here in her prayer, and it's something that we might well assume as well. The assumption seems to be what God is willing to do corporately for His people He's also willing to do for us individually. And God saw the affliction of His people in Exodus with the Israelites being oppressed as slaves in Egypt without any justice. He saw their affliction corporately. And Hannah seems to be confident that if God can see their affliction corporately, then why not individuals who are, pre- or who are oppressed, who don't have any justice? And here we have Hannah in her affliction who assumes that God hears her prayers and We assume, and rightly so, that God hears our prayers when we pray to Him. And what God is willing to do corporately, He's also willing to do individually. And God isn't just interested in delivering the church, but also individuals who come to Him with their afflictions. See, we're not just a number. We're not just lost in a crowd. Jesus knows the name the names of his sheep. He knows the hairs on your head. And this is a desperate prayer in time of trouble as Hannah is weeping in anguish as she delivers her prayer. And she's driven to prayer in her state of hopelessness. And we can assume that she knows that God is a God of grace. And that is why she's approaching him in prayer. Now, what do you think of her vow? Is this a good thing to do? Because it makes me wonder, right? It makes me wonder two things. One of the things is, you know, with my kids, can I do that? There's no way I can do that. And the second thing it made me think about is, is she really making a commitment? Is this a commitment or is this manipulating God? Trying to make Him do something. So just a little background on this vow. The Nazarite vow was one for a young Israelite to take to deepen their spiritual life. And it entailed three things. One was that they didn't cut their hair. 
One was that the uh, second one was they didn't touch the dead. And the third one was they didn't partake of the fruit of the vine. So no alcohol. And this was done as a type of fast that would last one or two years. And at the end of the designated time, the individuals would appear before the priest. They would shave their hair and then it would be burned. Now what's unique about Samuel and Samson years before him was that this vow was to be a lifetime vow. Hannah's giving of her child to the priest was a promise she made to God. And it's quite foreign to most of us. But she was giving her son as a servant of the priesthood. She was literally dedicating her son to the service of God to be a temple servant. And it was a costly choice. But, but from it, it was growth and the rescue of a deteriorating Israel. And her son was someone she was willing to give up. I can't understand it. And you can tell how badly someone wants something by how much they're willing to sacrifice for it. And if we really want something, we're willing to do anything for it. And you'll notice how intense Hannah's prayer is in verses 12 through 15. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Her prayer is so intense that it's inaudible. She's moving her lips, but speaking to her heart. And while she's praying, Eli is sitting in the judge's seat at the entrance of the tabernacle. Notice her and he thinks, like, she's smashed. Right? Like, so he goes to reprimand her. He's like, it's a temple. What's going on, right? But she sets him straight. And, and we see the intensity of her prayer. She tells Eli that she's pouring out her heart before the Lord. Verse 16. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And the God of Israel, grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Isn't Eli just the most sensitive of priests? You're smashed. What are you doing here? Right? And assuming that she's a wicked woman. right? He's, and he's like many pastors and priests today. Where people show up and we're like, Hey, why do you show up like that? Right, And this is just how life is. The, the Bible is a reflection of reality, not what is ideal. And the Bible tells us the truth, and it doesn't sugarcoat reality. And God loves us and wants us to deal in reality. And we can't do that if we don't acknowledge it. So they put it in here. And do you notice how Hannah deals with the insensitivity of a religious leader? Does she let the church stop her? Does she let a religious figure stop her? She doesn't. No, and thank God that despite the church, despite us in the church, people still get to God. And it's not right for people in the church to be insensitive, but it happens. And there are some of us here who have been hurt by people at the church, but don't let it stop you from reaching out to God. Keep praying to Him, regardless of how you've been treated by people who are supposed to represent Him. And you can continue communicating with him, talking to him. And even when people don't understand what you're saying, he does. 
And he created worlds with his speech. He calmed a storm in the Sea of Galilee. He healed diseases with his speech. He um, took out demons from people. Speech can alter reality, especially when God is behind it. And Hannah believed her words meant something to God, regardless of what others thought. Verse 19. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the name Samuel um, is actually a pun, a Hebrew pun. Um, Samuel means something like the name of God, and the, and the name Samuel sounds very much like the word ask in Hebrew. So Shemuel is Samuel, and Sha'al is ask. She named him Shemuel because she Sha'aled him from Yahweh. And so it's a little wordplay there that Hannah's doing. Now, concerning the grace of God, we, we see a pattern of how the Lord works here. God has a tendency, I'm going to let you in on a secret of how God works. He uses people. The hope of God's kingdom and God's people often comes through other people. Through the birth of a child. You, know, you can't have a person without the birth, right? So, Of course we have Samuel in this story, but you look at Genesis 21 with the birth of Isaac, and the very fact that there would be an ongoing people of God in the world depending, depended on Isaac being born. And you look at Genesis 30, where Joseph was born, and what's the big deal about Joseph? Well, it meant the difference between God's people starving to death in the land that they were living in, because there was a famine there, or moving to a place where they would survive. And Joseph was sent ahead by God to Egypt, even though it wasn't very pleasant, to preserve Jacob's family. How about Exodus 2, with the birth of Moses? And it's through God using Moses that Israel is rescued from Egypt. In Judges 13, the birth of Samson. And God used him to loosen the hold of the Philistines on Israel. And then we come to Samuel. And then we can go to Luke chapter 1 with the birth of John the Baptist, who was the bearer of news that the Redeemer has arrived. And then we look at Luke chapter 2, the virgin birth of Jesus. God has a tendency to bring hope and help through people, which usually requires a birth of a child. And what does this tell us about God? How is God revealed through this? Well, it tells us that God is deliberate. God is purposeful in the way that he works. He brings help in times of need. And here we have Samuel to bring out Israel from a dark period in their history. God answered Hannah. And there's a tendency here as well. There's a tendency for God to hear us and to answer us. And it's not just in this story, but it's also in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. Throughout Kings, throughout the Psalms, when the disciples cried out to Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, in our desperation, when our, when our only hope is God, He's there. And people may fail you, even religious ones. God will not. So if you have a need, bring it to God. Disadvantage is 
our advantage. You look at Hannah and what it did for her. Her her disadvantage was her advantage. It's not just in the big things, but also in the little things. Disadvantage drives us to prayer. Praying drives me to communicate with God in, in a more intimate way that wasn't there before. And over time, a relationship of trust, it matures, that, that wasn't there, it didn't exist if it weren't for my disadvantages that I experienced that drove me to prayer. Disadvantage is our advantage. Let's pray. Lord, how you trust us with different things and how you uh, allow certain things to happen. And all the while that uh, even those troubles and difficulties that come by in our life, that uh, if we would only come to you first in prayer and and, uh, put those things at your feet. And Lord, even when we are bitter and resentful and hardened from the things in our life, that you still hear our prayer, just like you did Ezra and Nehemiah, Hannah. Um, You accept us just as we are in our hurts, with us being emotional, with deep wounds inside of us. And we ask God that as we pray to you, that you would start a work within us to heal. And for those people that are dealing with things, with things such as the, the church hurting them, the people within the church hurting them, speaking flippantly and not knowing everything before they go approach them like Eli or even people that were not so good like his sons, that you would work something within those people that would be trusting of you and the work that you have in their life. In Jesus' name, amen.